What's up, guys? This is Pat, and before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder to please hit that subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. Also, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, at The Founder Hour. All right, here we go. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Posh. I'm Pat. And we're here with Justin Baldoni. He's an actor, director, producer, entrepreneur, and changemaker. And I'm a personal fan of yours as well by watching Jane the Virgin. I know a lot of people are like, you what? Watch Jane the Virgin? I, yeah, yeah. I had to just admit that, I <laughs> wow, guess. But you played it so cool. Yeah, I yeah, it. yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I had to get my fiance to watch Jane the Virgin. So, I mean, like, look at those, wow, like, dynamics. that switch. Yeah, exactly. So, excited to be here. Excited to kind of learn more about you and what you've done and what you're doing. So, thanks for being on with us. Thanks for having me. What about you? you it, not so much a Jane the Virgin fan? Uh, I have never seen Jane the Virgin. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. That's what I was expecting. Yeah. I normally yeah. walk into conversations with men and it's like, wait, what was the show you were I've on? heard of it. And I'm generally it. like... My girlfriend watches it though. Don't worry about it or <laughs> your girlfriend might watch it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Um, I think it's a great show. I think it's something that... Wait, how did you, how did you, get, how did you fall into that show? Was it like a yeah, random Netflix I have, I have like I have like, yeah, just like Netflix. I'm like, I don't really like anything. And so I was like... Virgin, you know, sounds interesting. <laughs> virgin. Yeah, just that, saw, that was the word. Just saw Virgin. I mean, Richard Branson obviously had something going when he named his company Virgin. So uh, that interesting. was interesting. I just watched it. I like drama. I mean, I come from an Armenian background. There's always drama. Uh, and so that's just how I got into it. And here we are today. It's been like, what, four or five seasons? Uh, well, the, it was on for five years, five seasons. Yeah. And then we wrapped the show uh, almost a year ago in, okay. in April. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's a great like, show. I feel like five seasons is like a nice uh, amount of time because I've heard like actors and actresses that are on a show for like 10 years, 12 years, like Game of Thrones. That's like who they are. And it's kind of a yeah. weird identity crisis once they're out. Did you ever like experience that at all? It's interesting. I, I, I talk about this sometimes, this idea of the thing that you fight for, the thing that you dream about, the thing that you just want so badly when it finally comes uh, this strange um, thing happens where you, after a period of time, start to take it for granted. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's human nature. And I, I remember after two years of the show, a lot of us on the show were starting to get a little antsy because we're just so used to, I think as entrepreneurs, as as actors, as um, as performers, you know, as creatives, there's this need for like constant stimulation and change. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think after a couple of years, I, I noticed, I was like, why am I getting, why am I getting antsy? I mean, this is, this is like, it took me 10 years to get a show like this. This is like my dream. I get to work in LA. My family's here. I'm having a kid. I'm financially stable. It's helping me pursue. And then, and then you start to realize like, oh, this is just human nature, mm-hmm. right? It's this thing where you finally achieve your dream and then it's like, okay, what's next? Right. Yep. Versus just like taking stock in what you have and being grateful and realizing that like, wait, I get to do this. And you forget, cause, uh, I mean, one of, one of the Arabic words for human in San is they who forget. Mm-hmm. So going way back, all the way back to one of the earliest languages, right? They who forget. And it's an interesting thing to think about, like as human beings, we just naturally forget everything. Yeah. The purpose of that was we forget our creator, right? You forget your, your reason why mm. maybe you know you guys have been doing this you said for two years two when we were off the before we were starting it's like i'm sure there's a time that will happen soon where you're like 
you know, you want something bigger or you want to do more yeah. or you we're gotta there. forget we're the, there. you get you, you it's it's a natural thing. You yeah. start a company. This is you know, you have a lot yeah. of founders on the show, right? It's about the founder hour. Founders all the time we get caught up in like this idea of wanting to build something and then you build it and then you kind of forget the why. Mm. And then you kind of lose track yeah. and that's why a lot on of On the flip side though, down. I think it's interesting because I always think, you know, these super mega successful founders, entrepreneurs that have billion dollar companies it's like they probably didn't even imagine that and it was like a series of steps and little things that ended up that yeah. way. So it's kind of like that whole uh, maximizer versus satisfizer thing where you know, you're know you always just trying to get more and more. But definitely on the flip side, it's like you, you want to also leave time for reflection and making sure that you, you see how you got there. And it's well, it's just, it's just being mindful and present, I think. And, that's, and that was what always helped me on coming back to your initial question. That's what helped me on the show not get the blues and just be over it mm. um, because it's very easy to become complacent. And I think just taking stock saying, wait a second, I'm on a TV show set, right? Like I'm walking in, I'm being greeted by the PAs, there's 200 people on set, there's cameras, there's lights, I need to say my lines. Holy shit, I'm an actor. Yeah. Like it's in, real. What, in what, it's real. And in what world was this even a possibility when I was growing up, right? In what world was this even, there was even a chance that this would happen? And, and I never thought it would be possible. So those moments where I could kind of go back in time and realize like, holy crap, I'm literally living my own dream and millions of other people's dreams, that's what allowed me to kind of stay yeah. in the moment. But 10 seasons, it's really hard, man, because yeah. you just, you know, you're yeah. playing the same character. You naturally, as a human being, want to try new things or try mm. to play other characters. In Hollywood, you kind of get boxed into these roles. So, so after five, six, seven years, people see you yeah. as that person wherever you go. Right, so yeah. now you're like Raphael to everyone. Hopefully, I got out just in time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wasn't, no, no. To I wasn't, me, you're Justin now. But very, but 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 yeah, but no, but and and at the same time, instead of being annoyed, I can also go like, wow, what a blessing! Right. Like I built a character that people love so much. And in those five years, did you ever do anything else in the acting realm? Like, because uh, I always wonder, like these actors sometimes that these big no. actors that have like two two movies coming up simultaneously and they're working on it is. Have you ever done that? And like, was that a challenge? Yeah. At well, all? well, so I guess it for me. It, no, but I did everything else in in terms of starting a company and building and directing and producing movies and other TV shows. Like that's what I was doing. I wasn't trying to act in between the show. Um, in fact, I didn't even have an agent uh, the entire time I was on the show. Really? Um, wow. So I. So you're yeah. booking every. You're doing all your bookings, everything yourself. <laughs> it's it's not. It's a little different than that. I had a manager, but so much of my business is generated. Um, outside of the acting world so it's the production the right. the you know all of the other things that have to do with building and creating a, a sustainable company um which is what i was really focused on so my intention of jane the virgin was to use the show to build everything else as a platform. to build out my ecosystem so it was it was it was a massive gift from god for me mm -hmm. that the show happened and it just so happened to be a show that uh people in our industry watched which gave me a certain amount of like clout yeah like, cashier, yeah. right because if i was on just like you know one life to live or uh you know and that's on every day for 25 years my, my grandma watches that, that every single right day. every single day and and if your grandma <laughs> could give me a job then that would have been like the perfect show for yeah. me but luckily yeah. it was like the right mix it was right. lightning in a bottle at the right yeah. time and i was able to kind of transform and use the show 
to build what I had been building pre the show. Right. Kind of um, to talk about the backstory here because I'm curious like how it all sort of came about. Were sure. you someone as a kid that like always wanted to be an actor? Like you were like dead set focused on this or, no. or what happened? No, I was always... So my dad... So going way back, my dad started the product placement industry in the early 80s. So he was one of the founding fathers of the, the integrated marketing mm-hmm. industry. After Spielberg did E.T. Mm-hmm. with the Reese's Pieces and sales shot up like a thousand percent, he did Gremlins with Spielberg afterwards um, and then from there on started a, a product placement marketing firm essentially where he was the middleman between the movie studios and the brands. Because mm. wow. he went like, oh, well, there's a big opportunity here. And my dad was always 10, 15 years ahead of the industry. But he was in the film industry or was he like an advertising? He was in the yeah. film industry. Okay. But he's a natural born entrepreneur and a bit of a futurist and a visionary. And he's always been a dreamer. And so I grew up watching my dad always kind of predicting trends and being a little too far ahead, almost so much so that it hurt him. Um, I remember back in the early 90s, he told me that there wouldn't be commercials one day. Mm. He's like, commercials will be built into the shows that you watch. And then like this was like pre-AOL dial-up. And Mm -hmm. he talked about um, uh, uh, interactive television was the word he used for it, where you would be able to interact with your TV. Like We have Netflix now. Like Mm -hmm. We have all of these things. So much so that he started a company called AsSeenIn.com in the late 90s was spelling where it was the first time you could go and buy anything you saw on 90210 or Melrose Place. You could buy like this microphone or this coffee cup or this table. And it was this huge big idea and it was going to blow up and then the the dot-coms crashed Mm. because they didn't have, there was no Wi-Fi. Like people didn't have access to it. We forget those days. Yeah. Um, So I grew up at this strange intersection and my mom is an artist, like a, a, a physical artist and a designer. So I had this like business creative, you know, brain dad and this artistic mom, and I kind of grew up in this intersection of of art and commerce in this mm. strange way. Um, and I never thought I could be an actor because I honestly didn't have the confidence. I was a bit of an ugly duckling, um, and I and I know it's. Like, what do you mean by that? Like people laugh. Elaborate. When I say that, elaborate. Like, were you I, just not comfortable the, with the way the you way, looked, or the, was it the way that I describe it? Is like I was never. I never had the girl like me. I was always the friend. Mm. So I was always the friend in the romantic comedy. Yeah. <laughs> right? The so like, love triangle, yeah. Like there was no love triangle in my world. <laughs> yeah. It was like it was a very one way love triangle. It was yeah, like yeah. I like you, yeah, just you like him. <laughs> sure, you can talk to me yeah, all yeah, about your yeah, feelings yeah. for him and I'll just like suck it up for 2 hours every night and then like cry. <laughs> yeah. So my high school <clears throat> my middle school and high school was very much like me trying to figure out who I was, um, n- just knowing like that I wasn't that guy. Yeah. Like I, I was, I, I, I remember an experience where I, my dad took me to this big, huge convention of all of these TV shows in New Orleans for my 16th birthday. And I brought a friend with me and like these modeling scouts kept going up to my friend. <laughs> like they would like say hi. And yeah. then they'd look at him and they'd say like, Hey, have you thought about modeling and stuff? And there was this part of me deep down that I was like, Oh, that'd be so nice to feel that attractive. <laughs> Um, but that was never me yeah. until I got older and moved to Hollywood. And the first time I ever had a manager, he sent me on an audition. And the description was literally like super hot, blah, blah, blah. And I, I remember emailing him back and saying, I don't know if this role is right for me. 
Yeah. And he's like, why? And I'm like, did you read the description? He's like, what are you talking about? So I've been dealing with my own versions of like right. the self-confidence of that. So the answer was no, I never thought I could be an actor. I always though loved creating. So I would use, I used to make uh, movies instead of book reports mm. in high school. And like my teachers would let me do that kind of stuff. I remember doing an alternate ending of The Great Gatsby right. when I was 17. <laughs> That's awesome that your um, teachers let you do that because I feel like a lot of teachers maybe don't. And, and one teacher that did. Yeah. And I'm really grateful for her. She yeah. was awesome. Yeah. Um, she was an English teacher. So Justin, during this time where you don't really, you know, think you're going to be an actor, I mean, what was your goal? Like in high school, did you have any idea of what you wanted to be? I was in radio. So when I was 16, I was the youngest DJ uh, at in Clear Channel history, I believe. By the way, what city are you guys living in at this time? Uh, I, when I was 10, we, we lived in Santa Monica right here where okay. we're yeah. recording until I was 10. And then um, when I was 10, we moved to Oregon after yeah. the earthquake. Right. Um, 94. The Martin Luther King Day earthquake in 94. Yep. My mom was like, we are getting the hell out of here. She yep. was convinced California was going to fall into the ocean. Yeah. Um, What's crazy so, is I lived in Northridge at the time, same. and I don't know Ooh, why. Same. I don't know why my parents didn't decide to leave. <laughs> my parents definitely decided to we leave. We actually yeah. moved like to the next city over. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I think it was a combination of the riots, and then yeah. there was fires, and yeah, then there was the a lot earthquake, going on and there was just a crazy three years in LA, and my mom was like, we want to we wanna raise you in a different right. place. So my sister and I and my parents moved up there, and um, so I was really disconnected from the industry. My dad would fly down to LA every week, and... Um, and so my connection with it was watching television and movies. So that was my escape. Like I loved movies. I loved TV. And um, I, would, I was absorbed into that. And especially as someone that was trying to figure out who I was and didn't have a lot of friends and didn't have a lot of girlfriends, like that was my escape. Um, so that's where my creative outlet kind of happened. But when I was 16, I fell into being a DJ. They, they asked what you – someone asked me this question, like what do you want to do? And we had these things called senior projects. Mm -hmm. And I did my project on the only thing that I could find that was comparable to the entertainment industry in my little town, which was radio, right. because I also loved music. And so at the time, like none of us, had, like we had Walkmans and yeah. CD players and things, but we didn't have like, you know, Spotify and, and yeah. all these things. Yeah. So we listened to the radio back then. And so I went and I interviewed the, 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 the programming director and he offered me a job doing overnights. So when I was 16, I was working midnight to six in the morning on Fridays and Saturday nights. And so definitely no time for girls. Well, that was also an excuse. Like, like it was. I'm busy. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was an excuse yeah. in the sense that there yeah. was no girls anyway. So it's like perfect. You know. Yeah. Um, and then that turned into a regular job. So I was doing doing it during the daytime. I was recording myself while I was on. So I was going to school, and I would technically be on the radio at the same time because it was pre-recorded. Mm -hmm. When Kiss Kiss came in, I moved over to Kiss. Um, Clear Channel came in and bought a Rick station Dees. there. What was your DJ name? Just in case. Just in case. That's good. Yeah. Because I Instagram friends with like an underscore just in case was their username. It was just in case or just in time. <laughs> and I remember Al, oh, yeah. I remember it was uh you know, you have those jingles. It was just in case. The perfect face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> Hence like what yeah, I meant. But like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, oh my god. So yeah, so I didn't know what I was gonna be. I just knew oh. I wanted I knew what I wanted to do was be of service in some capacity mm. with whatever talents or gifts that I had. So whether that was being on the radio or whether that was like, you know, I didn't know. Um, and I found my way to LA and there was so, so, so what happened? How did, how did the acting thing come about? How did you? The acting thing came about, I, I tore my hamstring my senior year of high school. I was a soccer and a track uh, athlete 
and uh, I was going to go to college for either one. Mm. And I tore my hamstring senior year, um, fell into a pretty big depression. Uh, I was one of these kids where I was an athlete, so that was my high school. It was not academics. I always was banking on the fact that I'd get a scholarship somewhere. Mm. Um, and only two schools offered me anything. Um, and Long Beach State basically offered me a partial scholarship. They covered like all my books and something else. Like mm-hmm. it was, you know, it was a couple thousand dollars. And I really wanted to get out of Oregon. I wanted to come back to LA. And I chose Long Beach State and um, fell, in, fell in love, got my heart broken, got cheated on, ended up moving out of Long Beach to transfer to Santa Monica College. And I moved into, my dad had kept this tiny little office, which was a studio apartment. <laughs> on Wilshire, mm-hmm. and I moved into his office. There was only a couch and a desk, and I slept on that when I transferred to Santa Monica College. And in that apartment building, a man asked me if I wanted to be an actor. And, he just uh, came up to you and he's like, hey, you want to be an actor? Yeah. Like one of those tricky. guys in the mall or something? Like, uh, Yeah, and there's <laughs> like, you know, it, it, in hindsight, it was a bit predatory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, there was a strange relationship, yeah, and yeah. I realized that uh, a little bit later. Um, what was what was he what, would he, what was like his? He was goal? a manager. He was okay. a manager. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and it and it just something about you know. But again, you know, I'm a 20 year old kid and I don't know anything about the yeah. business. And someone thinks that like I'm good looking enough or whatever to be an actor, and it was a big deal. Um, and that's for another time that story. But essentially, a couple months later, I got my first job. I took my first acting class and and I got my first job, and that began this strange like. Ten-year yeah. overnight success story of what happened on Jane the Virgin. Justin, I'm curious, and I know that you're a very thoughtful person, and, and probably have always been that way. You've always probably thought about, you know, these deep topics, and have had conversations with yourself and others about life in general and other things. Um, and one of the things that I've been thinking about lately is, you know, pursuing your passion versus finding your passion. Right? We hear all the time people say, "Pursue your passion." And my response always is, I don't even know what my passion is, right? Did you Passion's a dangerous word. Right. I agree. Did you ever think like that? Or did you ever know what drove you? What motivated you? What your why was? And if you did, when did that come up? Yeah, but it's probably a little bit different than some of the other people you've had on the podcast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My, my why wasn't motivated by uh, personal gain. So... The most important part of my story is, for me, my faith. I was raised in the Baha'i faith. Um, uh, if you don't know what the Baha'i faith is, it's the most recent of the world religions. There are six and a half million Baha'is around the world. Essentially, we believe in the unity of all the religions. We are all different chapters in one book. Um, there's one God. It's not a guy in the sky with a beard. It's an un- unknowable essence. Um, we're finite beings, therefore we don't have the ability to comprehend something that could create us mm-hmm. or the universe. And the basic principle is that we're all one, mm-hmm. that all the religions are all one, and the central theme of all of it is love. And we're asked in the Baha'i faith to engage in an occupation or a trade and let that trade be a form of service to humanity. So for me, I always knew I wanted to be of service with whatever it was. I, I th- can even think back. It's funny. I, we brought up radio. I was on the radio. It was like one in the morning. Mm-hmm. I was 16 when Aaliyah, remember the singer mm-hmm. Aaliyah, mm-hmm. was killed in a plane crash. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I remember pausing the music and saying a prayer live on the radio to the like 
whatever, 20,000 people that were listening. And having a feeling in that moment that this is what I want to do for the rest of my right. life. Right. Not per se like radio, but injecting spirituality, a higher consciousness of sorts into entertainment. Um, so for me, my why has always been to serve God. Now, that's not to say along the way that's been blurred yeah, and my sure. ego and the why gets lost because I forget, as we said earlier, and then it's my job to rediscover my why. Yeah. And the whys will change. I also, I also believe in the, the three whys. I don't believe in the one. I think the one why is still selfish because if you go a, de- if you go a level deeper and you ask the second why of the why and then you go third and say what's the why of that why, then you get to the true core of why you really are doing what you're doing. And what is that for you? That's for me to serve God. Right. The first why is like, I want to be an actor to make a difference. Right. Why do I want to make a difference? Like, and they, there could be a ton of reasons why. I could, in my search for my whys, I could, real, I could be realizing that I'm trying to heal the wounds of my childhood. Right. Or I'm trying to become popular at a time because I didn't have any friends. Right. Or I'm trying to heal. Like there's always, that's all, there's a wound underneath all of that, mm. I believe. Yeah. But if you go deeper, there's no wound. So for me... It's to be of service because I believe that this life is a workshop mm-hmm. and it's a preparation for the next. Right. Um, it's a mirage in some ways, as we're told. Um, so I just have always known that that's, that's why I want to, which is one of the reasons why if, you, if I look at everything that I touch, it all is a part of that same ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And I never kind of diverge off that path. And it's been a really, it's been a huge help for me. It's been a guiding force. Yeah. So this guy approaches you and and you sort of fall into this acting thing. Was there like a time where you're, you know, the, the, the wheels are starting to turn and and you're starting to get gigs, but you were maybe like clashing with the industry at all or like, I've always clashed with the industry. I've always felt like a, like I didn't belong. Like a black sheep. Yeah. To a certain extent. Um, uh, I think when you talk about spirit, spirituality and faith in our business, it's it's oftentimes right. seen with cynicism and yeah. it falls on deaf ears and you're looked at in a funny way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, especially 15 years ago when I started. Um, I'm really proud of my naivety, by the way, uh, back when I was a kid. Also back then... Because social media wasn't as big, you didn't. Not everyone had a voice as big as they have today. So you were sort of a, represented by what you were like, what shows or TV, you know, movies you were on, or like what network you worked for, and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, but even then, like, I never even got to that place. I, I got a first one of my first gigs with this show called Everwood when I was twenty-one, and uh, it was a great show. I came on the fourth season. The show got canceled, and you know, I couldn't get a job after that for a few years but but back then it was really just you were only as good as your managers or agents really and um and I was always somebody that nobody really got I mean I had the same problem in the industry like like is he ethnic is he white is yeah. he like persian is he like nobody knew what I was nobody knew if I was 30 or if I was 20 um, Isn't that a good thing though in, in I, acting? Not, not really. Situation. <laughs> not really. <laughs> like I was generally cast as like bad guys or rapists yeah. or like you know just weird terrorist number six. I well, 
I never got to play a terrorist. Oh, that's unfortunate. I've auditioned for many terrorists, <laughs> oh. and I'm grateful. Uh, I'm I'm grateful that I you're didn't one, steal. You're, you're not yeah. bad enough to be a my, terrorist. My, well, no, my my friends, like my you know my my Middle Eastern friends. <laughs> yeah. It's like a blessing and a curse because playing these roles are also the things that have kept them alive for so long. But at the same time, there's always a frustration that it's yeah. like all I play is that role. Yeah. So at the very least, I didn't steal that away from them. Good, good, good. Um, but uh, but yeah, man, it's I've always been in conflict to a certain extent. But that's also a motivating factor of like what we do is like, can we change the industry? Can we disrupt in a positive way the way things are made or the way things are done? You know. Like, and is that something that you see more now? Like, is it changing towards that? Um, or is oh, yeah. It still, yeah, it is. It absolutely is. It's changing in a lot of ways. I know for me, n- there was no handouts. Like, there was no, nobody was like knocking down my door saying, you know, do you want to make a movie or do you want to make this show? It was always us beating on doors right. saying like, hey, can you please believe in this? Or this is why the world needs this. And very similar to my dad, like being a little ahead of my time, like, and ahead of his time, I was trying to sell entertainment that was positive, that said something, you know, that uh, that the and networks called Earnest, you know, mm. eight years ago, when all people wanted was like darker and edgier and this. Mm. And now we're finally starting to see that come back around. Um, but it's a but it's a it's you know it's a bystander of where we are in like society. Mm-hmm. I believe we're in this rapid state of disintegration and reintegration. You're seeing like the old world fall apart while at the same time the new world be built back up, right. you know, and that new world is being built back up, hopefully with more spiritual ideals, you know. Justin, we've sat down with like hundreds of people at this point and entrepreneurs, creators, founders, et cetera, and, you know, including yourself now. And all of these people have dealt with challenges and struggles and problems in their life and both in personal and professional uh, in their professional lives, how do you see yourself dealing with you know the struggles that have come up in your professional and personal career, and how do you approach that? Rumi said, "The wound is where the light enters you." Uh, Leonard Cohen in the song called "Anthem" says, "The crack is where the light gets in." Uh, Baha'u'llah in the Baha'i Faith says, "My calamity is my providence. Outwardly, it is fire and vengeance." but inwardly it is light and mercy. Um, He says, with fire we test the gold, and with gold we test our servants. So the idea of hardships and and calamity and and, uh, tests and trials, this is an ever-present theme in the Baha'i faith and in my life and something that we talk about constantly. And for me, it comes down to how you look at trials. Um, Baha'u'llah always says to see the end in the beginning. And um, so... Obviously, there's like uh, this initial reaction that happens when something bad happens, where it's very easy to become a victim or to or to react emotionally or to become upset. And I'm Italian, so you know the first decade was me trying to figure out, like in the business, me trying to figure out the balance of like, well, how do I manage people or how do I run a company or how do I, you know, this person did something unjust. And my first instinct is to like, it's fight or flight. There's also mm-hmm. that that masculine part of me that wants to like you know, fix things and punish and like, no, that's not okay. And like fire and, you know, all the very traditional ways in which you see, uh, businesses run and, and many that have become billionaires or run their businesses that way. But personally, when it comes down to hardships and trials, I've been practicing immediately searching for the why 
or what could possibly be the benefit to this? Mm-hmm. And it's been such a help. The benefit of your the reaction. Benefit, the benefit to the actual test or the trial yeah. or the hardship, right? right? Um, but it's really hard to it's really hard to do that for sure. Um, unless you're constantly undergoing hardships. It's a in practice. Many ways. Though. I mean, you have to practice that. It's a practice, and you every know? situation is different. And, so you, there is no blueprint. You and every situation is different. And the whole point of this, like, <laughs> we always said in our office, like, you don't learn how to surf in calm water, right? Right. You know, you don't become a great captain by just going out and traversing like calm seas. Like, you need to be tested, right? Pilots need to be tested. Um, we all need to be tested. When we go to the gym, we go to the gym because we want our muscles to grow. So every every single machine in that gym is built to make a very simple range of motion more challenging in some way. It's a hardship that we put on our body. It's right. a test. It's a trial that we're putting our bodies through. But for some reason, like, we don't think about that when we're experiencing hardships in life. Like, we go and pay $120 to Equinox to go have a nice experience at the gym. Can you tell me which Equinox that is? Because I pay way I don't more. go. I don't I go. To, way more. Yeah, I actually yeah. don't go. I, <laughs> okay, I, build okay. a, I build a gym in my house. Perfect. perfect. I, perfect. That's the way to do um, it. Mostly for efficiency. But, yeah. we, but we pay money to go to these gyms. Yeah. And we do it, like, willingly. But when hardships happen to us in our lives, it's, we don't always have that same response. So we've been, and I say we in the sense, like my wife and I talk about this a lot. It's also very present in our faith is the outlook on hardships and trials and tests. Like when, when bad things happen or when, or when you get, you get disappointed or when an outcome isn't what it should be, or when someone does something unjust, it's like, well, where's the lesson for me? And the best, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was from a a dear friend of mine who's dying of cancer right now. Um, And I was struggling in my relationship with my wife when we were dating and I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, should I call her? Should I not call her? Like, she just, she's not responding to me. This was early on in our dating life. And he said, and he was a, um, a meditation uh, martial arts master. And he said, whenever you feel that thing in your gut come up because of a hardship or a test, and whenever you, you, you feel anger or you feel passion about something, do the opposite. Don't do, don't do the, don't, do not go into that response that you want to go into that like, oh, I want to text her back or I want to fire that person or I want to yell at that person. Take a breath and do the opposite um, because it's not coming from a pure place. And that was the greatest advice I ever got. Love that. And I think the best thing that we can do as entrepreneurs, as people in general, um, I don't know if you're both married, but if eventually it's coming in a marriage it's coming up is you're never going to always get to that. You're never going to get to that point where you can just handle every situation and be perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you don't need to be alive. You've succeeded. Yeah. You've quieted your ego. Yeah. Nothing bothers you anymore. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, if yeah, you yeah. are somebody that tells me that you can go through your entire life and not respond with anger or emotion or like, I mean, you're a robot. Line, then I don't believe you. You're, yeah, a, you're robot. a robot. You're not yeah, a human being sure. anymore. Um, and I don't think any of us will ever get there, but what we can do is come back really fast and apologize. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think this morning, I was driving here. I had a meeting this morning and I woke up off, a little bit off today. I'm tired. I was up really late last night. And I pulled out of my house and there's a stop sign. Like I make a right and there's a stop sign right there. Yeah. There's never anybody there. So I pull out and I'm setting up ways on my phone just because there's traffic and I'm already late. And 
I'm just kind of rolling through the stop sign. And as I roll through the stop sign, I see out of the corner of my eye, mm. this woman saying, what are you doing? Like yelling at me. And then I just kind of kept rolling and I was like, what the heck just <laughs> happened? And I look back in my rearview mirror and she's flipping me off. Oh, good. Because I was looking at my ways and rolled through the stop sign and almost hit her dog. Because oh, she shit. had two dogs. And I stopped and I went, okay, I have two choices here. One is I'm late and I could just keep going, yeah. which is the normal thing that Angelino and, and yeah, yeah, Angelinos yeah, yeah. do. Yeah, this happens on a daily basis. <gasps> or, <laughs> or I could turn around and apologize and not have her day start off in a really shitty way. Because um, I've never had anyone do that to me. So I made a choice. I turned around. I drove around, I caught up with her, I pulled up, I rolled my window down, and she saw me, and you could see her get really angry, and I said, I'm so sorry. I am so embarrassed. I was looking at my phone, I didn't see you. I Please forgive me. And she suddenly, like, her shoulders dropped, she had a smile on her face, and she had no idea what to do, because no one had ever probably done that. Yeah. And she goes, uh, it, it's, it's okay, Th thank you for apologizing. And I was like, I'm so sorry. And I just went off and she went off and I could see her just like relax. And then, you know, her day was better. My day was better because I didn't hold some of that guilt. That's the thing that I think I've learned the most in my journey as an entrepreneur and my journey as a filmmaker telling the stories. We haven't even talked about it of, you know, all these people who are dying of terminal illnesses and living amazing lives and are shown my last days. This idea of like coming back faster because hmm. we're all going to fuck up. Yeah. We're all going to make mistakes we're all gonna like accidentally cut somebody off or accidentally hit you know uh, this woman and her dogs because you're looking at your phone hopefully ways hopefully, hopefully not. not but like we'll all do something right that is some minor or bigger offense to somebody including our spouses or whatever but how fast can you come back after that so in terms of hardships and trials right. that's how i look at it it's like also, i'm not always gonna if fail. you're on the other side too like if you're the one being affected like how quickly can you have compassion exactly and forgive and because life is so short and why get caught up in all these little things sometimes and that's a fun game that i think about is if, if you ever if somebody ever gets pissed at you when you're driving or like cuts you off or is going too usually fast, your spouse <laughs> or is my spouse but you go like i wonder what they're going through yeah, yeah. or like you create like i create like a yeah, false yeah, 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 like a, yeah. this some um, this like dream where i'm like oh my god i wonder if they're if they just found out somebody in their family got yeah, cancer yeah. Right. Or i've done that so many times if yeah. they're rushing and it's like suddenly it's like oh i'm not mad at them yeah like i can't let that ruin my day yeah and you can apply that same thinking to your business to your life to your relationships to anything it's there's a quote in the Baha'i writings, neither take nor give offense. Mm. Like it'll never happen. Yeah. But the idea is like, can we go throughout can we go throughout our lives and make an effort to not take or give offense? Justin, I remember a couple of years ago I was listening to something that you had done and you were discussing and you kind of talked about how when you talk things out, it almost makes you feel better, right? Um, and you had talked about this in the for the topic of toxic masculinity that you really have been advocating on and I personally really love. And it was about some situation that you were going to and you had met up with your friends and you took them somewhere sure. and you had this like struggle. And after three days, you were finally courageous enough to actually tell them what the problem was. And you saw that they shared the same sort of you yeah. know issues that you had, right? Talk to us a little bit about how this even came to be where, you, you know, this idea in your mind of like, you know, the toxic masculinity and that I should try to make a difference, you know, be that change maker so that we talked about. So I want to stop you on the toxic masculinity part okay. because I'm actually not fighting toxic masculinity. Okay. And, and it's been, it's interesting 
to see how weaponized that word has become mm-hmm. politically. And I kind of jumped out publicly and was talking about this all started because I was talking about how much I love my wife and daughter yeah. as they were being born. Like this whole journey that I've been on with masculinity was because I was writing these long captions on my Instagram, which nobody was following me. So I didn't like, I was just using it as a personal journey or a personal diary. I was talking about the love I had for my daughter and my hopes and dreams for her to break the glass ceiling. Because when you have a daughter, unfortunately, sometimes you start to realize like how the world is set up, uh, not in the, their favor. Right. And how, and how it's so much, very much been in, especially as a straight white male, my favor. Not things that I was always thinking about. I did always recognize that there was an issue, but I didn't always have the language to describe it. But in this process, I, I've realized that, that toxic masculinity is being used um, in, a, in, a, in a weaponizing way to make men feel a certain way. And and I'm not against men. I'm a man. I love being a man. Yeah. Like, I have a huge group of male friends. Um, like, I'm a dude in every sense of the word, whether it's like through sports or the gym or like, you know, whatever. I've, I've been mm-hmm. called alpha many times. Although after my TED Talk, a lot of guys reached out to me and, and DM'd me and yeah. tagged me in beta. And I'm like, can we talk about that? <laughs> I'm like, actually, let's talk about that, yeah, which yeah, yeah. technically is yeah. not something – that's beta. Because right. they thought that you were going against normality. But well, they didn't watch the whole talk. Right, exactly. They didn't watch, the problem was that like that Facebook video of my talk got like 50 million views, and it was only a three-minute segment, and yeah. I said the word toxic in right. it. Hmm. But it was like actually like a 20-minute But it's an 18-minute you know? talk, yeah. and it talks about the journey, my journey of masculinity what I, and what I learned from my father. Um, and the whole point of the talk, the thesis, if you will, is that as men, we need to learn to embrace all parts of us including the parts of us that are that are, society recognizes as feminine mm. right all parts of us just like as like women don't need to only have the feminine parts of them they can have the masculine parts of them and that was the whole idea of like we to be complete human beings mm. as men we need both sides but toxic has become a trigger mm. and it makes men feel attacked and i can understand why so the last few years I've been really thinking about my language and because my work is not with women. My work is with other men. Like that's what, like when me and my guys get together, that's where the work is. Right. Yeah. Um, so I just am very mindful in the, in the words that I use because unfortunately they've been used against us in so many ways. Um, but in terms of the journey, man, it's just been me trying to figure out myself. I, I don't have a, like I'm not trying to like be woke or like yeah. or like make like you know snap my finger or be an influencer right. and preach. like uh, yeah. and preach. I don't have anything to offer anybody except my own experiences as a man and as a human and what it was like for me growing up and maybe some of the things that um that because of the way we are cultured as young boys and because of the images that are projected onto us and because of what we're taught and what's been passed down to us um, have kind of worked against us and hurt us in a lot of ways. And so I'm offering my journey of exploration to see if some of those things can be rectified or adjusted or changed through introspection and through maybe like thinking about things a little bit differently. But that's it. It's like... You know. Yeah, and on that topic, I think um, it's interesting to think about, and I would encourage people to 
usually like I'm, I'm, I'm always weary of this too. And I'm trying to look out for myself when I'm in a situation where I'm part of a larger system and mm. you quickly get accustomed to that system and you're no longer an individual. You're part of a system and a lot of your beliefs and the way you look at things um, are shaped by that system. So it could be where, you know, the environment you grew up in, it could be your society, it could be what you, who you follow on Instagram or what types of yeah. music or TV you consume, that kind of stuff. So it's something that you, it requires a lot of mindfulness and, and making sure that you're, you're looking out for yourself and not falling into that trap. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the biggest thing for me is that I just asked myself hard questions. Like what? Why do I do that? Why do I behave this way? Why do I react that way? Um, I've always been somebody that feels guilty immediately after doing something that I intuitively feel could have hurt somebody, right? So if I lose my temper and I storm off or something, I will immediately feel guilty about it. The difference is I now ask myself why. Like why did I, why did I react that way? Or like what part of... What was that part of me that made me feel like I had to rip that person's head off? Um, why am I interrupting my wife? I talk about that in the TED Talk. Mm -hmm. Like, what is it about me that, for some reason, subconsciously values her less and her opinions less um, than my own? Because otherwise, why would I be not listening to hear everything she says? That means that I already think that I'm right, assuming that she then is wrong. Where does that come from? Did I experience that? Did my father do that? Like, you know, the thing, why do I feel like I have to always have my shit together? Why am I so afraid to show vulnerability in my close male friendships? Um, why am I afraid to show weakness? You know, what are, like, these things that all of us, to a certain extent, feel. We all have our own things. Um, you know, if I was if I was drinking a lot, like, why am I? Like, what is this part of me that makes me feel like I need to go numb mm. myself? Why can't I cry in front of my male friends? What, why is it so hard to look another guy in the eye? All of these things were things that I think about, but I never really asked myself the questions of the why. Like, why? And when you start to ask why, the answers become pretty clear. Mm. It's like, it's socialization and... It's our job now at this point. Then once we ask those questions of why, we have to figure it out. You, you got to go deep. And then you have, that's where the work starts. Mm. And it's like, oh, well, if for some reason I am putting on a face and always making it look like I have my shit together and I realize that that's what my dad did and, I'm, and I learn through talking to him that's what his dad did, then, oh, wait, I can let that go <laughs> because that's not me. That's something, that's a script that was given to me by my dad. That and said, you can change that cycle. And you can change the cycle. You can end it. You can stop it, right? Mm -hmm. And you can do that with like literally everything. Right. Um, and that's been kind of the journey that I've been on. That's my masculinity journey. That's what I do the show Man Enough. Do you think that when you started opening up to your male friends that it created this domino effect? Yeah. And they also felt like, okay, now... It is okay to not be okay. Absolutely. It is okay to have these conversations. I feel Sorry, like, that was the other part of your question. I never. No, no, answered. it's okay. I mean, like um, Pat and I always have these discussions because I mean we're best friends. We can look at each other eye to eye and tell us yeah. tell each other about our emotions, our struggles, all that stuff. But we feel as though sometimes that 
the same thing that you feel is that other people think that it's not, men don't feel like it is okay to be okay. Like they do need to have their shit figured out. They do need to provide. They do need to make money, all that kind of stuff. And all those things are great. But, you know, what is it that, you know, what that we can do collectively as men to then inspire other men to also, you know, open up and be transparent, not if not with others, but themselves? Yeah, that's a great question, man. I'm, I'm grateful you asked. As men, I think we... Like human beings, right? It's monkey see, monkey do. Like as humans, we we form our personalities, our likes, our dislikes as a product of our environment and by the things that we see that we either like or that we don't like, right? And men especially are heavily influenced by other men. So it is this double-edged sword in so many ways. Um, for a long time, men have had to be a certain way mm. to survive. Um Women culturally, at least here, um, are taught that as women, they should gather in groups and talk about things. Like it's, it's a good thing. It's encouraged, right? From a very early age, tea parties and things. Men, like when we're boys, we're not encouraged to sit and drink tea and like talk and tell stories. We're encouraged to go play or roughhouse or wrestle or build something or go outside and get dirty. Mm. And you start to see early on um, in the social socialization of both women and men, that women are very encouraged to form these groups and these factions to talk about things, and men are not. Mm -hmm. So it's it's partly socialization, I believe, um, and a big part of what I've learned is by taking that risk, which it's interesting. Like I'm doing a lot of um, cold plunging and ice bath work right now because I'm afraid of it. And I really like to dive into things that I'm afraid of. So you got to go on the um, Kevin Hart show. <laughs> that's that's in your future. Yeah, in the future. <laughs> Although I don't, I don't. They don't get all the way in, and you don't want to be in for that long, anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just the idea of getting into an ice bath for yeah. me is 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 terrifying. And I just have this thing with cold water, and so I've been forcing myself to do it. And that right before you do it, right, your body responds in a very, uh, very predictable way. Your heart rate increases. You start to sweat you start to breathe differently, like your breathing becomes a little bit labored, some anxiety sets in. And the identical thing happens before I share something with another man or another person that's, that's private or that could expose me or could make me feel weak. And it's an interesting physiological effect. Um, and being able to push through that and get on the other side of it, uh, bliss is waiting. Because when you get out of that cold plunge, you feel euphoric after you've shared the load of your feelings with another man or friend or therapist. You feel like a weight's been taken off your shoulder in your chest and you can breathe a little bit easier and your heart rate slows down. That's not something that we've ever been taught, right? We're taught to go to the gym. We're taught to do these things. We're taught to like, you know, perform to a certain extent our masculinity. Um, but we've left out the the most human part of it, which is, the sharing, because the other part of masculinity that nobody talks about is how lonely you can feel, mm. right? And there's, and there's parts of being a woman that are identical. I mean, my wife described the loneliness of motherhood in a way that I've never been able to comprehend, even as a man. It's far lonelier than what I've experienced as a man, this feeling of loneliness of being a mother and not being celebrated and appreciated for all the hard work that you're doing and raising these children, while I, on the other hand, am raising and building a company and getting all the awards and celebration She's not getting any of that at home. Um, but as a man, like being able to share, 
in the sharing, we give other men permission. And that's the, that's the magic. Like that was the magic. That's why I chose to do the TED talk. The whole point was like, all right, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to share some parts of myself that are ugly. And if I'm right, it will give other men permission to do the same. And I'm willing to like be a, have arrows and darts thrown at me and, and all the words they use, cucks and all these things. I, I'd never even heard of some half of these, these words that men say, you know, to make other men look bad and make themselves feel better. Um, but like that process was amazing. So when I shared, you know, if I share with my male friends that I'm struggling with something and I feel that physiological response kick in, when I let it go, I'm like, oh, I feel free. Because then they're like, yeah, dude, I feel that. Or I'm struggling with that. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly we, it's funny, we become like the women in our lives for hours because once a man starts to open up about his feelings, there is just so much in there of shit that we have been repressing and holding down that had never come out. And suddenly it's like, oh, not only are we good at talking about our feelings, we have a ton to talk about, but we never allow ourselves the permission. We don't like, we don't like, you know, um, uncork the bottle and like allow it to come out. So we we're just like kind of, a 1988, like Cabernet Sauvignon. Like, but when it comes out, man, we're amazing. And that needs to happen more because in the process of sharing true connection actually happens. And I believe that's where real male friendships are built. Mm. It's not in the bar. It's not in the weight room. Yes. It's on it. You know, you can build deep friendships on the field, you know, playing sports, you know, but if you look at like a lot of, a lot of men and where they've made their best friends, generally it's through situations that where there's hardship or trials, where people are forced to be vulnerable with each other. You know, like I know I have friends that met in the army, mm. you know, or the Navy. And it's like, they're their best friends. Why? Because they saw death together. They saw like bloodshed. They, they were in like the scariest situations. They held each other when they were crying or like that's, that's those friendships are the the strongest because they've been through hell together and they've been forced to be vulnerable, but you don't have to go to war to be vulnerable. You can go to war in yourself and make that choice to be vulnerable and then suddenly forge those friendships and then realize like, Oh my God, like this is not only just freeing, but I feel so close to you. And then you have that person for life. And that's how I am with my friends. And we have these deep, deep bonds that I wouldn't trade anything in the world for yeah everyone everyone loves to i mean like when you think of like relationships and friendships people have their gym friends and then their drinking buddies and this and that but like a true friend that's going to be there for you like thick and thin if if they don't know enough about you as a human being and and have that connection then are they really a friend or they're are they just there for the good times and not going to be there for the bad times right? and, it's, and that's the fastest way to tell whether somebody's your you know your friend or not is have some hardship happen and see who calls you yeah. You know? Justin, what are you working on these days besides, you know, obviously being an incredible speaker and an incredible, you know, you know, I hate the word influencer, but inspirer, you know, essentially. It's very kind. But <laughs> what are you working on in terms of, you know, films, movies, you know, acting? Yeah, well, we're, we're here in, um, we're here where I'm editing my, you know, my most recent film. It's called Clouds for Warner Brothers. And um, it's the true story of a young 17-year-old boy named Zach Sobiak who wrote a song called Clouds. Um, it was a, had, I remember that kid. 
he had osteosarcoma. Yep. He had a rare form of bone yep. cancer, yeah, and right. in the last year of his life, he got a chance to fulfill his dream. And that was a great song, by the way. It was a great song, yeah. simple but great. Yeah. I and and I actually made the documentary that you probably saw. Yes, I have seen uh, that. seven years ago. Yep. Um, so we optioned his mother's book called Fly a Little Higher, and I've been trying to get this movie made for five years, and we finally did at Amazing. a big studio. Um, I sold a I sold a big chunk of my company, Wayfair Entertainment, um, and uh, we just started a. Uh, $25 million content fund. Um, so we're starting our own studio, which is really cool. Everything's going to be focused on content that makes us think, makes us want to be better people. Um, Does that mean like investing in other uh, content creators? or it's, it's a combination of all of it. You know, mm-hmm. We're a studio, so we, we generate and create intellectual property. We um, right. back filmmakers and um, really you're looking to find original, amazing voices. <clears throat> stories that haven't been told, all of which that you know will hopefully help eradicate the world of the various isms, which is um which is a huge uh, which is a huge goal of ours because through content like so much is possible. Everything is possible. You know, attention yeah. is the greatest currency in the world. We For always sure. say at Wayfair that uh, time is our most valuable asset, and we so appreciate our audience being willing to give us their time. So we put so much effort and energy into the content that we make because. It's a time interaction, right? Um, we only, this is the only, it's the most finite resource on the planet. And we all only have so much of it. So what we do with it really matters. So um, building that, I'm currently also writing my book, uh, Man Enough, which is uh, going to come out next year. So uh, that and starting to produce uh, the next few movies and trying to somehow at the same time be a father, yeah. which is far more important than any of those things, and a husband. So it's the it's that constant work life balance that um, I don't believe truly exists in anybody that I think we're constantly trying to find. What's what's your formula for that? Or I guess what do you try, how do you try to go about that balancing mindfulness? Yeah. I think every day every day is different. I in my business you can't really have a set schedule or a plan because these projects that you give birth to. There's so many different people that are involved, hundreds and hundreds of people and so much money, and you're not truly in control of it because it's also a creative entity. Um, So every project needs a different thing, and at any given point in time, you're trying to get 10, 20, 30 projects off the ground at the same time, understanding the rule that maybe if you're lucky, one of them will go. Mm. Um, And when one of them goes, you have to give it your time. So my wife and I have a rule. We're not apart for longer than like 10 days. Yeah. my kids are four and two right now. So, you know, even down to editing, like I made sure that we edit, uh, I'm editing the movie 15 minutes from home um, instead of being in Burbank, which is an hour away, mm-hmm. so that my, I can take my daughter to, pre- to kindergarten every morning. So every morning I take her, drop her off, we do our thing, come to work. My wife picks up the kids, she brings them by here, they say hello. So they always have daddy in their life yeah. in some way. And you just have to compromise and find little ways to make it work. And I think so long as you're trying and you're making an effort and you're not just mindlessly going about building your business, um, then I think that you can adjust and readjust and fail and succeed. And, you know, you'll have seasons where it works or seasons where it doesn't. Love it. Justin, obviously, this has been incredibly inspiring. I think, you know, when people hear the story that you just told and what you're working on now and the things that you're talking about, I hope that they 
can sit down with themselves, especially the men, and really think, but also for women that, you know, have men in their lives to perhaps bring it up, right, to maybe initiate that conversation with them. And, you know, it is tough, but perhaps they can be the ones that say, hey, you know, let's sit down and talk about this. But also for the men to really sit down and think to themselves, like, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And, you know, what can we work on, right? Because none of us are perfect beings. We'll never be perfect beings. Never. But how do we get better every single day? So, you know, thank you, I think, for me. It's been incredible to just hear from you. It's been a blast, man. Thank you. So we can't wait thank to see you. Thank you. I'm sorry if I talked your ears off, but I guess that's the point of a podcast. That's the point of a podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Justin. All the best with everything. Thank you guys so much for having me.